Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University now, but I used to teach linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley. And there, Native American languages played a large role in what one learned about, because a great many of them are spoken in California, and especially Leanne Hinton there, Professor Leanne Hinton at the time, was dedicated to studying and preserving Native American languages. And what always struck me most was not only the the wonder of those languages in terms of what they're like, but the air of demise hanging over so many of them. And the fact that this is a problem in need of solution. And I want those of you who listen to Lexicon Valley to know what an urgent problem this is and that there are people who are trying to do something about it. That is, this episode will be about language death, as we call it in the biz. It's going to be an interview show and we'll get to my guest very shortly. But I want to do a little bit of scene setting first. There is a language death crisis analogous to the one that you're familiar with in terms of the world's animals and plants. I'll put it to you this way. When I think of just a language, the prototypical sense of what a language is, I don't think of it as something sitting on a page the way it would be easy to. I don't think first of English or German or Russian or Turkish. I think if it's a language, if it's the typical one of the six or seven thousand that there are, I think of it as something that's mostly spoken and probably dying. I hate to say that, but that is the nature of the situation. And the reason for it is this, because of globalization in large part, not to mention with Native American languages, the fact that until rather recently, many Native Americans were discouraged from speaking their languages or even forbidden to speak them on the pain of physical battery. The problem is that a language is a fragile thing. Once one generation isn't raised in it, then the language is highly threatened. And that's because, as we all know, once you get past about 15, it's very hard to learn a language with true fluency. You have to get it in there when people are kids. If you really want to get it, you have to get people from the cradle. So if you're in a situation where there's a community, you walk in, you might think, well, the language is being spoken because there's something other than English. But if you look more closely, you might find that the people who really can speak it and chop potatoes and walk around and really know that language as well as English, all of them are, say, 65 or older. 
Then if you're talking about people who are, say, in their 40s and 50s, well, they speak it, but they speak it the way a lot of us in America speak French or Spanish if we're not born to Spanish. That is, you know, kind of. And then anybody who's a kid really just knows some words and phrases, and you can imagine what they're going to pass on to their kids. That language is highly endangered, as we put it. And especially always remember that most languages are not written down in any real way. In terms of how we think of a language as being a written thing spontaneously, really it's only a hundred, maybe 200 languages out of the thousands at most. So many of you will think, well, Hebrew was brought back from the dead. Yeah, but Hebrew was very, very, very written. That was one of many things that made that a special case. So before I bring on our guest, one other thing I want to explain is I know that none of you are under the impression that there was some one quote unquote Indian language with some quote unquote dialect spoken in the United States. I don't need to ward you away from that. But you should know that there were about 300 Native American languages spoken in the United States. And among these 300, there was massive diversity. These languages are all so different from one another. Depending on how you count it, they number into dozens of different families. I have never driven by a Native American language. I certainly do not speak one. They are not my objects of specialty, but I have never been presented with information on one of them where I didn't think, really? There's a language that does that? It's amazing what treasures are being lost. So just very quickly, you can have a Native American language where you can say something like, the man killed the fly. Okay. Now, how do you say the fly killed the man? The way you would say that is you'd say, the man killed boop the fly, and you add some little suffix onto it. You keep it saying man killed the fly, but you say man killed boop the fly, and the boop means that the thing that you wouldn't expect to win did. A language can work that way. If you are speaking another kind of Native American language, you don't say, I have a big house. You say, the house bigs to me. And that's just the way you say it. There is a Native American language. It's actually a passel of them where, you know, we have the, and it just kind of sits there. And we know that in many other languages, the will come in two or three genders. That's boring compared to some Native American languages where you can have a the that's different depending on whether the thing is vertical or horizontal, or round, or if you're talking about the person, the the is different depending on whether the person is standing up, sitting, or moving. That is a normal language. And so, we just need to think about that kind of thing. There's a song, for example. It is the last thing I'm going to say. There's a song that I'm not going to play. We're not going to have daffy Broadway musical clips on this episode because the topic is too urgent. But I will openly admit that there is a song from Annie Get Your Gun that has gone out of fashion today because it's an outdated depiction of Native Americans. But there is a lyric in it that mentions Chippewa, Iroquois, Omaha, Asu, Asu, Asu. Every time I hear that lyric, I don't think about Ethel Merman. I think about the fact that those languages, Chippewa, you can call that Ojibwe, and then an Iroquois language, and then Omaha. The three things I just mentioned are from those languages. The business with the fly, that is Ojibwe. The business with the house bigs me, that's what an Iroquois language does. And all those definite articles are 
Omaha. So that's what we're talking about now. Guess who I have with us to talk about what we're going to do to make sure that these languages don't disappear. I have Will Maya, and he is with the Language Conservancy, which is a very important organization that is doing very important work. And Will, could you please give me a basic summary of what the Language Conservancy is about? Well, just to summarize, Language Conservancy works with uh, endangered languages mostly in North America. We currently work with about 15 languages. We work with schools, tribes, the education departments to develop resources, dictionaries, textbooks, training teachers and training speakers and learners, all the things that a language would need to kind of get back on its feet and uh, start using the language in active, everyday kind of settings again. So let me ask you with a kind of um, put-on naivete. Can't the people just kind of get together and start talking it again? What is it that they need outsiders to help them do? Right. Well, you know, most of these languages stopped being spoken actively in pretty much the mid-50s. That was a result of the boarding school eras. There was about 70 or 80 years of boarding schools that these communities went through that really did a number on the kind of intergenerational language transmission that... People would be hit for speaking their languages or told they were Well, they were hit, soap in the mouth, isolated, food was taken away. I mean, there was numerous kinds of stories, both documented and anecdotal, that we hear of people suffering, you know, through that. And there was this whole shame associated with it at that time, too. So suddenly you're if you spoke a native language, you were considered uncultured, backwards, un- uneducated, right. backwards, all that type of thing. And and so this went on for 70 or 80 years, of course, and that eventually became reflected in people when they returned to the reservations. They had that perspective of their native language not being worthy of being used, and those that spoke it were not considered well-educated yeah. and all of that. So native folks have difficulties using their language in an everyday context because of this historical baggage that's been transmitted. And it's not easy learning a language. You know, basically, we're trying to reconstruct this natural intergenerational flow that got interrupted. And now we've got to do this with kind of artificial means. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I should say also that we are talking about a situation where there were once about 300 languages spoken in the United States by Native Americans. And today I learned this from the Language Conservancy website. Probably only about a dozen will be fluently spoken and being passed on to children within about 30 years. There is a heartbreaking map on the Language Conservancy's website that shows the contraction of 300 vibrant languages on the map to just a scattered roughly 11 or 12. That's what we're talking about. Will, I want to ask you something that comes up a lot. As a linguist, one hears about language death and language preservation a lot. And over about the past 20 years, what one always 
here said with great enthusiasm as well with new technology. And what that means is basically the Internet and especially now that you can carry the Internet around in your pocket. People say that new technology will really help us keep languages alive. And I must admit that often I'm so busy that I don't have time to take in exactly what the technological help will be. What are the sorts of things that will make these sorts of efforts more successful now than maybe they could have been in 1990? Well, since 1990, the ability to do desktop publishing of things like dictionaries and textbooks has really accelerated the development of materials from that perspective. Definitely. Definitely a lot more products are available to get out there, you know, from picture books to readers. In the past, it would take 20, 30 years to do a dictionary for a language. Now Hmm. we can do one in one year. A person can now download the Lakota Dictionary with 25,000 words on it, hear the Hmm. words from a male and a female speaker spoken, see the example sentences. It's just easier than ever to have a reliable, accurate version of the language. And, you know, this just wasn't the case 30 or 40 years ago where you had to figure out how the orthography worked, what the the phonology of the language was, and you weren't sure about it. You had to go check it with a speaker, go back and forth. And these were like obstacles to learning for a lot of young sure. people. You know, like, how do, I, how do I learn this language if it's not spoken in my family? Well, I've got a dictionary, but that can only take me so far if I don't know how to use it. And it's it. sitting in the living room at home, and I'm not it, usually exactly. in and the living room. Exactly. it's right. on your phone. You can hear the language perfectly spoken by an elder. You have that confidence. The future of all these languages rests with these young people, 20 to 35-year-olds yeah. who are, you know, we call these the language warriors, who they're becoming eventually the teachers of the programs, the parents for the immersion schools, developing apps, creating a, a new generation of speakers and users of the language. When I teach a class about language death in my introduction to linguistics class, almost inevitably, something happens. There is somebody, for some reason, it's usually somebody who sits in the back middle. For some reason, the person is always male. There's somebody near the end of the class who raises their hand and they say, uh, can I ask a question? And I say, well, okay, yes. What, why are you hesitating? And the person says, well, I get how, you know, these, these languages are, are, are rich and everything, but, you know, really, who cares? Who cares if these languages aren't there? They're from another time and, and, and progress. So what do you say? Let's call that person. His name is Matt. What do you say to Matt? Well, we can say things like, well, speaking another language creates another version of expression that can create a richer worldview for you, can give you different perspectives. We're just strong believers in diversity, in linguistic diversity, cultural diversity. We think it strengthens the overall discussion and conversation that people are having. What do Native Americans themselves say about why they want to preserve the languages that the grandfathers and grandmothers speak? If Matt were where they live, what would they maybe say to him? Well, they certainly feel at a loss for not speaking their own language. Here they are, Lakota, Ojibwe, Navajo, Cherokee. In most cases, they're not speakers of the language, and yet they are, in every other way, members of that tribe and that community, and yet they cannot partake in even knowing the songs, the stories, the the histories, all of that they can't actually experience in their own language. And that really filters who they are and who they feel they are. 
And so a lot of that is this feeling of I'm not really being authentic to who I am. Right. They certainly want that back, and they feel like the language was taken from them Which it was, without yeah. their consent. They say, I want to understand the perspective that was passed down for hundreds, if not thousands of generations. Language, you know, embeds all of that. It embeds those perspectives, those histories, those ideas. You know, it's hard to try and recapture that in English. You can't really know the full story of it from a dominant culture perspective. You know, we see very strongly in these communities that once that language gets built back, that the self-esteem improves, we see that translated into community health, social health, physical health. It's an important kind of metric that really helps get these communities back on their feet and uh, moving forward in positive ways. You know, I wonder if it isn't the central metric even, because you think, well, culture, it's the language, it's the food, it's dance, it's the spiritual slash cosmological aspects. But so much of feeling like you are, so much of being a separate culture has to do with being able to speak in a code so to speak, that nobody else can understand, that you have your own thing. So I would imagine that the language would play a central part in somebody feeling like they really are participating in the thing that culture is. Am I am I putting myself into the head of such a person, or does that sound like what... I think that's exactly right. I, I think language is a quantitative thing in some ways, and that you can measure your ability in the language. You know, you're either fluent or you're not fluent. You understand or you don't understand, and you have to use a certain level of discipline in order to get to that level. You can always understand a little bit about the history. You can understand a little bit about the spirituality and the culture and all of that in different ways. You can do that partly through English, but you can't truly be a a member of that thought group in that language Mm. without actually speaking it, you know? Mm -hmm. Luckily, from the 1850s on, there's been a good deal of literature and stories and all of that in those languages. So people can actually go back and read that, or they can communicate with the elders and capture that, or they can read those songs or those prayers and all of that and participate in in really authentic ways with that culture again. And that is irreplaceable. You really just cannot replace language. It just, it is such a powerful and profound way for communities to think together, right? It's ultimately a shared experience, and it's not replaceable by just, oh, this thing or that thing. Sure. Well, you know, let's zero in a little bit for a spell on the efforts that the Language Conservancy is making to save a particular language. And so I'm noticing on the website that apparently this summer there's something going on with the Acoma language in New Mexico. What's going on with Acoma, which is spoken fluently now by only about a hundred people? We know what's going on in the United States in general, unfortunately. What's been happening with Acoma this summer? So Acoma is And a I'm mispronouncing Car- it, of course. Sorry. Um, Acoma. Is, Go ahead. <laughs> is a Karis language uh, spoken in the Southwest. It's pretty much an isolate in terms of its language family. As you mentioned earlier on in the show, there are dozens of language families in in the United States as distant from each other as Indo-European is from many others. And so there's huge diversity. The story is essentially this is a tribe that has been encountering and has experienced, you know, European culture since the 1600s with the Spanish. They've been able to maintain their language 
over the last 400 years with some degree of success. And literally in the last 30 or 40 years, they've not been able to transfer their language intergenerationally and now are in a state of crisis with the language. They live in a Pueblo. Will, I'm going to admit something. I have never really known what a Pueblo is. Just like I told my audience months ago that I always thought that the word disheveled was disheveled, and a bunch of people wrote to me and said they thought so too. I'm going to take a risk here too. What's a Pueblo? So it's obviously a Spanish term for village, but in this case, in the Southwest, there are these Pueblo tribes Mm -hmm. that live up and down the Rio Grande and in the areas of Arizona and, and New Mexico. They are horticulturalists, they grow Mm. corn, they usually live in small communities, and traditionally their dwellings were adobe brick buildings that were multi-storied. Acoma is considered one of the most well-known Pueblo tribes. They have this beautiful pottery that they do, this fantastic geometric designs. Mm -hmm. And then they live in this traditional village called Sky City, Mm -hmm. which has been occupied since 1200 A.D. It's a World Heritage Site. It's considered one of the oldest continuously inhabited villages in North America. So we're talking about a place that is significant in terms of the cultural and linguistic heritage of the United States and of North America. A tribe this well-known, you know, was so surprising for a lot of people to hear that their language was in such a state of of collapse. Hmm. There were a lot of reasons for it. One of them was that they were kind of hesitant to get involved with linguists. Didn't I hear, yeah, that that was an issue for a long time, that they didn't want to share for very understandable reasons? Yeah, well, that's good right. Go. You know, in the turn of the century, I think there were a lot of abuses where anthropologists and other researchers would come to the community, take photos of sacred stuff, take recordings right. of taboo topics and right. other kinds of things, publish the results, and often, you know, take materials and things without permission or without going through the proper protocols. And so there was this kind of breach of trust that happened from the academic community over the course of 40 or 50 years. Right. And later on, as these communities got wise to that, they were like, well, why should we trust them? Why should we let them back into our community right. when they were, were doing this to us you know, without our permission? Right. So it took a long time to even get beyond that. And now, hopefully, with uh, the work we do, which is so much tied to respecting the sovereignty of those communities, of making sure that we're maintaining that respect and credibility in everything we do. And so with ACMA, that's a case in point. They saw our reputation as good faith partners in the revitalization process with communities. They wanted to move forward from their conservative approach to language revitalization. So they discussed with us, you know, what the best ways forward for that was. And so in the spring, we um, started work on a dictionary for them. This is the first dictionary in that language ever. And uh, literally within Hmm. six weeks, we recorded over 9,000 words. And by the end of the summer of 2017, we will have finished the largest dictionary of any New Mexico Native American language all within six months. That's gorgeous. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A final major question, Will, and this is one where I really do not know the answer. And I want um I want to throw this at you. I had a tiny amount of experience with language preservation back when I was at Berkeley. Just for a few weeks, I was working with speakers of the California language, Northern Pomo. And my job was to help reconnect them with their language. And I was only there for three weeks. It was at the Breath of Life conference that Professor Leanne Hinton has initiated at Berkeley. Now it's also held in some other places. And so I was only there for the three weeks. And as it happened, I didn't know it at the time, but those were my last months at Berkeley. And so I didn't have a chance to follow up with these speakers. But we had a great time and I liked what I was doing and I think they liked what we were doing. But I must admit, you know, Northern Pomo, this is a language. It's not like English. You know, the verb always comes at the end. It's got a bunch of sounds that are hard to pronounce. It looks kind of funny on the page. I found myself thinking after the three weeks, hmm, it would be a real challenge to get people speaking this language based on, you know, the written documents that we had. And the leader of the group who I was dealing with even said to me, she said, I know that we're not going to be able to have a conversation, but we're just trying to connect with it in different ways. And I left it there because I couldn't follow up. But I've always wondered, is is it possible to really revive a language? A part of me kind of thought, wow, these are just too hard and these are busy people. I certainly you know, couldn't learn to speak Northern Pomo with the current state of my existence. Can it really work? That is a question. I'm not being aggressively skeptical, but I'm sure that some people are are wondering the same thing. Well, obviously, these are difficult languages from an English perspective, but not unreasonably so. I mean, these are all learned. I hope not, yeah. And we certainly teach them mm-hmm. and have created, developed dozens, if not hundreds of speakers already in the different languages. Oh, you have? So That's we do great that, to know. Yeah, and, And we do that through these new techniques that are available. Ironically, (laughs) many of these techniques developed for teaching English as a second language around Hmm. the world. In fact, there's a huge boon in the development of and in the techniques that have evolved in the teaching of English that have really helped other languages become more successful in the teaching of those languages, mostly called communicative language teaching techniques. We employ those to great success in these kinds of programs we call intensive language programs, up to uh, eight hours a day of instruction. They're very hands-on. There's a lot of modeling. There's a lot of micro-teaching. There's a lot of props involved. There's a lot of pattern work. It's active. It's fun. It's one of these ways of learning language that really get you involved with it very quickly. So using that technique, using the new available materials that we have, it's actually very doable. And once people see how it can be done, it kind of removes the veil of doubt that might exist. Oh, this language is too difficult to be taught. You know, once we can break through that barrier and get people to actually speak in sentences and even simple things, it starts to actually light a match. And it is a discipline. You know, learning language doesn't just happen in a weekend. You know, it takes daily practice, daily routine of moving forward, learning the next type of sentence pattern. 
we recommend you know at least 30 to 60 minutes a day in order to definitely get yeah. to a certain level of proficiency in the language and we want people to do that people need to want it it's not just some hobby on the side or some you know heritage language you have to treat it like a workout of, uh, yeah yeah if they're disciplined about it and if they go to the events and they stay in a community of like-minded people that want to also learn the language, it can happen, and it does happen. So we know these languages can be revitalized, can be brought back. It just takes the right kind of feeling around it. And that's why we call it a language movement. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. just something that can be done in a classroom at a school as a second language type thing. Those kind of programs aren't going to produce the results we need. We need people actively invested in learning their languages again. And once that happens and once that gets started, it's really remarkable to see how transformative those movements become. Those young people generally become the role models in their community. Everybody wants to be like them. They want to be cool. You know, language becomes this kind of cool factor. I want to close or pre-close by playing a clip of one of these languages as actually spoken, because we're talking about them in such abstraction, and I figured Northern Pomo would be as good a language as any. This is a woman speaking in 1963, and what she's saying is, it's a prayer. It's, you, he who is our father, accept this poor, humble food. Have pity on me. I am to be pitied. I'm not a rich person. I don't have things. I'm lacking baskets and beads. But even so, humbly, I offer this to you, so this way you will have mercy on me. Listen to Northern Pomo as actually spoken. Mamul Yama Enamo Alma Akap Ijunamul Ashadiim Do Harpitam Harpit Ayakiana Jama Sandin Kosho Pika Kalkisho Nan Minanda Kapt Ijal Amto Al Nin Bilidom Duk Harpit Ayaki Will, I wanted to ask you, what can someone do who wants to get involved or, or, or help save a language themselves? Well, for example, studying linguistics is an important avenue to getting involved in language revitalization. Or listening obviously. to certain podcasts, yeah. Or listening to certain podcasts. Certainly, you know, we don't see a, a large portion of linguists getting actively involved in language revitalization yet. I think it's still a growing portion of the field. We want to encourage, you know, students and researchers to start getting involved with communities around them. You'd be surprised at the number of communities that are needing serious linguistic help. We often feel that there's no maximum number of linguists that a community can have. I think there's so much work on each of these languages that still needs to happen. So the more people involved in it, the better. Of course, working with an organization like ourselves, where we have the track record and the infrastructure needed to build these materials certainly helps, but there are other organizations as well that people can get involved with. We're currently developing an online learning platform similar to the way Duolingo works Hmm. for Lakota. That online learning platform will use the social media, the gamification, all of the bells and whistles that we're seeing in some of these modern language learning platforms. In Lakota, for example, there's more that's been published just in the last 10 or 15 years that has been published ever before in the language up until that date. So we often use the expression that 
we want to make it so that there's no excuse not to learn these languages. <laughs> there's just uh, there's just so much available now. You just don't have an excuse anymore <laughs> not to learn it. That is just perfect. Will Maya, thank you very much for being with me today. This is an issue that I've always thought was not only interesting but important, and I think you have enlightened my audience as to its urgency. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. I appreciate it very much. Before we close... One thing that worried me a little bit about playing that clip of the woman speaking Northern Pomo is that I don't want to promulgate the idea, if I'm trying to get across that these are languages, just like any other languages, that anybody who says anything in a Native American language is going to be kind of solemn and ceremonial. That's one stripe of things, just like it's one stripe of humanity. But Native American languages can be spoken of with joy and levity and sarcasm and fun as well. And I thought there's no better way to indicate that than with the fact that Disney, believe it or not, actually gave in to a demand from speakers of the Arapaho language to have Bambi dubbed professionally into Arapaho, a language which, let's face it, almost nobody has ever heard of beyond the Arapaho themselves. But here is a little piece of it because you should hear a Native American language used in some way other than one that is grave. And so, for example, this is the scene in Bambi where Bambi and Flower the Skunk put their noses together. This is very cute. And so here is the scene in English. Flower. Me? Listen to the exact same thing in Arapaho. These are Disney characters, and they're not speaking French or Dutch or something. This is Disney characters speaking Arapaho. Here it goes. You know, I haven't seen Bambi since I was about eight. And in looking at the clip of this, you can find it on YouTube. For one thing, I always thought Flower was a girl. And Flower is also highly endearing. I've decided that next week I'm going to take another look at Bambi after I get finished with this week's movies, which are Chirac and Johnny Guitar. In any case, you can reach the Language Conservancy at www.languageconservancy.org. And you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com to listen to past shows 
and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexicon valley. The editor of this show is, as always, Mike Volo, who puts up with a lot and I will remain myself. See you next time. The Double X Gab Fest is a bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, and even Beyonce, have to get her in there, and other issues of interest to women and friends of women. I highly recommend it. It's hosted by the co-host of Invisibilia, Hannah Rosen, Noreen Malone from New York Magazine, and managing producer of Slate Podcast, June Thomas, who I fondly shout out to because she also manages mine. Every other Thursday, you get a heaping helping of feminist discourse about news and culture in your podcast feed in the Double X Gabfest.